We'll be in 1 Timothy and reading verses 1 through 11. 1 Timothy. First Timothy 1 through 11. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God our Savior, and the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our hope. Unto Timothy, my own son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. As I brought thee to abide still at Ephesus, when I went into Macedonia, and that thou mightest charge some that they teach no other doctrine, neither give heed to fables and endless genealogies, which minister questions rather than godly edifying, which is in faith, so do. Now the end of the commandment is love, out of a pure heart and of a good conscience and of faith unfeigned from which some having swerved have turned aside unto vain jangling desiring to be teachers of the law understanding neither what they say nor that about which they affirm But we know that the law is good if a man use it lawfully, knowing this, that the law was not made for the righteous man, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and for sinners, for unholy and profane persons, murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers and for manslayers, for fornicators, for them that defile themselves with mankind, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjured persons, and if there be any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine, according to the gracious gospel of our blessed God, which was committed to my trust. Shall we pray? Loving Father, that you may bring your word to our hearts, unto edifying and being built up in the faith. And we thank you, Father, for your grace to us and mercies. For we pray in Jesus' name, asking your blessing now upon your word and upon the ministry of it. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, well, here we are in a very familiar book, perhaps, to you all, um, concerning church order and... Of course, as we think about the pastoral epistles and those that had to do with those who became servants of the Lord. And so we find that the first epistle to Timothy was uh, written during perhaps the last few years of Paul's life, somewhere around A.D. 64, 63, something of that nature as the first churches, first century churches, increased in number, questions of church order and the like began to bring, uh, come to the front and it was necessary to bring some ministry and teaching uh, from the apostle to these various needs in the church. And as we look at this uh, subject this afternoon, Uh, The theme of the message goes along this line. The law is for the lawless. As we, verse 9 is the verse I have taken this uh, theme from. The law is for the lawless. Um, The first uh, two verses form the introduction, as is common to these epistles, of greeting in the name of Jesus Christ uh, and our and God our Savior, and he says, "This is our hope. This is our hope, as we know that without the true uh, deity and the teaching of the doctrines of Christ, uh, we are left without a true Savior." For Christ is the one who came and died for our sins according to the scripture. 
And of course he is our hope unto salvation, unto living our lives right now and of also of things to come. Secondly, Paul charged Timothy to rebuke those who teach heterodoxy. And heterodoxy is the opposite of orthodoxy. If you know what orthodoxy is, uh, it is those things which we would refer to in the Bible as teaching the doctrines of God and of Christ, of those relating to salvation, the proper sense of salvation, soteriology, and of our hope of eternal life and of heaven itself. Uh, and so we find uh, this heterodoxy refers to those teachings that were floating around at the time which were not orthodox to the Christocentric doctrine in the first century. And you might even say right now there may be some heterodoxy among many who teach and that it is more of their of their own view of things rather than of the orthodox view that the scripture itself brings forward to us. And then also Paul explains the nature of false teaching which was not Christocentric or Christ-centered in verses 6 and 7. And here we find that he begins to refer to those uh, in Ephesus who were not teaching the true doctrines of Christ who are somehow beginning to infiltrate into the church and uh, bringing some disorder to the proper teaching of the church. And so we always have to be careful concerning those who are in the church assembly that their doctrine is uh, truly uh, orthodox doctrine. Uh, also in the fourth section the true nature of the law is for the ungodly, lawless, and disobedient. Now, as some were teaching the law or pr promoting um, law in their so-called teaching, which was not a true gospel, then we find that uh, they were mingling, in a sense, in some sense, these false teachers. Uh, and uh, the, the gospel, they were making it uh, other than what the true gospel was. Um, so we need to recognize that the law is for the lawless, disobedient, and ungodly, and we'll talk about that in a few minutes and why that is the case. So first of all, as we look here at verses 1 and 2, Paul, of course, uh, introduces himself as the apostle of Jesus Christ by the commandment of God, our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. As we know that uh, Paul was not an apostle among the twelve, uh, but he was an apostle, he calls himself, out of due time. He was an, an apostle which, which was called directly by Jesus as he had that encounter with Christ on the road to Damascus. And that he, uh, of course, was assigned his apostleship. And uh, he became uh, noted as the apostle to the Gentiles, though he had a great uh, burden for his own people. And, uh, but he calls himself an apostle of Jesus Christ by the commandment of God our Savior. And notice in this particular case he says God our Savior, which is a quite unique statement to make um, because he is really s stating that Jesus Christ and God are both in this together, in this uh, whole soteriological uh, project of bringing people to, to him. Uh, God our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ who is our hope. And so um, when we think of God, God is our Savior. It's not improper to say that. Jesus Christ is our Savior and it's not improper to say that. God the Father is God. God the Son is God. God the Holy Spirit is God. And they form the triunity of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so it wasn't improper for him to say this. But he includes that phrase here. And so it is good for us to 
acknowledge this and not get confused over the subject. Though the Jews would say there's only one God, uh, they don't acknowledge the triunity of the Godhead. And uh, so they are uh, um, quite unique in their particular uh, belief, Judaistic belief. And in some ways, of course, uh, what they talk about is true, but in other ways, they don't acknowledge Christ. So it is deficient. Uh, then it says, Unto Timothy, my own son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so here he says, Unto Timothy, he includes Timothy, uh, because Timothy is uh, his apprentice, if you will, in the faith. And... Uh, in a very real sense, though he wasn't his biological son, he is a spiritual son to Paul, and Paul uh, uses that sense here. Unto Timothy, my own son, in the faith. In the faith. Now, if you have been instrumental in bringing someone to faith in Christ, and you will perhaps have uh, dis discipled them, maybe you could say that they are a son in the faith to you um, as Paul could um, and I'm sure many pastors have nurtured and um, mentored and discipled young people and perhaps have considered them to be a very much a, a part of their family in the sense of spiritual family in the faith she says, unto Timothy, my own son in the faith. And then he uses, of course, this familiar triad of, of mercies that God extends, his grace, mercy, and peace. And each of them is, of course, very significant to our relationship to Christ and of our salvation in the Lord. We rely very much upon these three uh, important words. Without the grace of God, we would not be able to say that we are saved. Without the mercy of God, we would have to say that we deserve uh, to be judged. And truly, mercy extends that grace to us. And then the peace of God indicates to us, of course, that we have found our peace in God, in God our Savior. And Lord Jesus Christ. And so he includes Jesus Christ our Lord. Uses all three terms for him. Jesus, Christos, Kurios. Uses all three terms here. And so this introduction is, uh, is a wonderful introduction, is it not? As we think about Paul's words to the, uh, to, uh, the young apprentice. And uh, as he is ministering... Uh, evidently at Ephesus to the people at Ephesus Paul an apostle of Jesus Christ by the commandment of God our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ who is our hope unto Timothy my own son in the faith grace mercy and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord as I brought thee to abide still at Ephesus at Ephesus now we know the Ephesians church was a very doctrinal church in the sense that it seemed to be there were some very profound doctrines found in the book of Ephesians and we look at them often and, and uh, consider their, their uh, wonder and the, the beauty of the doctrines of Christ in them uh, but even among the most grounded churches or doctrinally sound churches there can be problems you see. Uh, and so whether the church is a big church or a small church, and though it may be very sound in doctrine, we still have to watch out for uh, those who would teach something other than true doctrine. Uh, it seems that sometimes uh, people's eyes glaze over when you start teaching doctrine to them. Uh, they all fall asleep <laughs> for some reason. Well, maybe it is because um, the, uh, the measure of faith that they have isn't quite significant enough to keep their eyes open considering the great depths of faith these doctrines take them.
And so we find that some of the doctrines in, that we often talk about concerning election and predestination and various uh, aspects of heaven and hell and of who's going to be there and who isn't, um, of what it means to truly be saved and how one truly is saved, if you know they are saved, and the true depths of the Spirit of God to work upon the heart of man and accomplish its purposes, to convict of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Uh, doctrine can have a kind of a, a lulling effect upon people if they are not true spiritually in tune with these things and understand them adequately. And so I would encourage you to try to understand the deeper things of the Word of God for your own benefit, that when you hear them brought up, uh, you will not kind of zone out or something, but rather that you will see if they truly match what the Bible was saying, what is being said to you, and that you might truly appreciate the doctrines which are being taught, because they, uh, without them, we would not have a full and comprehensive idea in the Bible of God and of his purposes. So you need to recognize that. As I brought thee to abide still at Ephesus, when I went into Macedonia, that thou mightest charge some that they teach no other doctrine. And so Paul charged Timothy to rebuke those who teach heterodoxy something that isn't orthodox and it has more to do with their own viewpoint rather than God's viewpoint and so um, he says um, I charge thee I charge thee uh, some that they teach no other doctrine so charge that thou mightest charge some so Timothy was to in a very real sense he was to correct and if, he, uh, if at all possible, those who were teaching something other than true orthodoxy among them. And so uh, we always have to be careful of that. Um, I think one of the things that pastors probably try to do is to watch their words carefully when they speak about doctrinal issues. Because... Um, you know, it's easy to make a misstep and say something just a little bit wrong, and people will get the wrong idea. Um, so when it comes to uh, doctrinal issues and the doctrine of salvation or heaven or hell or God or Christ and, and various uh, aspects of those doctrines, uh, we need to speak clearly and succinctly, carefully about those teachings and keep them as biblically sound as we can. It isn't a good idea for, say, my opinion is. It isn't a good idea. It isn't a good idea for just, just to say, oh, I think it is. If you don't know, you're better off just to use the verse and say, this is what the verse says. If you don't understand it, let's do a little research and maybe you can, you can understand it better. Because sometimes people want to kind of redefine the words into something that suits their thinking. When it's been 2,000 years, Jesus died on the cross. The disciples were disseminated throughout Asia Minor and all around the Mediterranean and even into India and Africa and so forth and so forth. And the gospel was taken with them and people were saved. And the manuscripts of the doctrines, of course, were carefully copied and remain um, essentially to our understanding the most soundest of the doctrines remain intact. And so we understand that this was a very, this is a very important area uh, that we recognize. And so we can't use our own, our own uh, definition of things. We must stick to a biblical definition as close as we can. Um, 
As I besought thee to abide still at Ephesus when I went into Macedonia. So here is Timothy. He is now at Ephesus still. Paul went into Macedonia, Achaia, that region. And thou mightest uh, charge some that they teach no other doctrine. He wanted them to teach uh, the true orthodoxy of the scripture uh, concerning Christ and of salvation and of where the placement of the the placement of the law now we know the law is good as a, as long as a man use it lawfully the scripture says and so we recognize that uh, Paul wasn't saying that the law was just simply done away with he was saying god has a purpose for it Neither give heed to fables and endless genealogies which minister questions rather than godly edifying which in faith so do. Now who, who in that time might have been involved in genealogies? Well, the Jewish people of course were. I mean, they, a lot of people, a lot of the Jewish people wanted to trace their ancestry back to, you know, wherever. Um, and uh, so genealogies were in the, significant in the Bible. Of course, we have the genealogies of Christ. And when we look at them, we kind of marvel at it. But we know that many of the genealogies in the Old Testament, especially, were passed along orally. And um, then, of course, we have the many teachings of the Jewish Talmud and Torah and so forth, um, the Pentateuch and so on. Um, So... Who else might have been involved in this? There may have been some who were leaning toward Gnosticism at the time. Uh, Gnostics and knowledge. And they considered that they had a higher knowledge. And, uh, of course, uh, when anybody explores things based on their own opinion, you can get off from track pretty easily. Um, And so some people were getting off from track. Um, we know later on in the book of Galatians, the law was was something that came up again. And here it is mentioned that there were some who were off course. Neither give heed to fables. Well, were there some Gentiles who were involved in fables? Could very well possibly be. That might tend to understand where the Gnostics come in. Endless genealogies, perhaps, as concerning those of Jewish background. And he says, which minister neither questions, neither, uh, rather than godly edifying. And maybe you've come across people that keep bringing up these sub-issues. You know, they, you, you, you tell them about salvation and, and they're all the time bringing up something else and, you, you try to explain them what salvation is all about, and they say, well, what about the people in, in, in the distant country which have never heard the gospel, and, and they go on to all kinds of different things and questions and, and, um, and endless, uh, endless questions, and perhaps even some mythologies and so forth. Um, well, these uh, are not edifying, you see. Uh, godly edifying comes uh, in the, the scriptures through the word of God and in faith, in the true faith, which is in faith. He said, so do, which is in faith. So these, the uh, true edification comes from the word of God, not from man. You know, it might be interesting and in some sense, you know, we, we kind of become very curious about other issues that relate to the Bible. Um, well, for a long time, they couldn't find the Hittites, but finally somebody found them. <laughs> and, you know, the different things that, that come up in the Bible, um, they try to search them out and everything as if they're going to prove or disprove something, instead of taking the Bible for what it says. Well, we take the Bible for what it says because we believe that the Bible is the Word of God. Now, we may not understand everything about it, 
but we can understand enough because it gives us enough to understand it. If it says the Hittites were there, then they were there. Um, just because we can't find some archaeological discovery which clearly points to them, although I think that has already been done. But, you know, that there's people want to prove things. And, uh, and so they get into this kind of thing, searching for knowledge. Neither give heed to fables, perhaps leading to Gentile Gnosticism, and endless genealogies which minister questions rather than godly edifying. And so questions that do not, uh, cannot be answered or uh, of uncertain origins do not edify. They rather just seem to bring up more questions. Um, and so we would rather stick to those that are true to the faith. Verse 5, now the end of the commandment is love out of a pure heart and a good conscience and of faith and for feigned. And so he says the, the true end of this, whole, this matter is this, that love, the love of God, out of a pure heart and a good conscience and faith that is sincere, that is not fault or faulty in any way. And so even if you don't know exactly some answer to some question, these three areas are very important to accentuate in our lives. The love of God, a pure heart toward God, and of true faith in God. Um, a lot of questions can be answered just by simply accepting the things that the Bible says. And we've sung some hymns about the love of God. And can we question the love of God, you see? Do we, do we question it? No, we just say, God loves me. The Bible says so. God so loved the world. I mean, why question that God loved the world? And some, some go into some big doctrinal dissertation about, about trying to define just who the world is there and, and so on and so forth. And it, it, it just ministers more questions. But the true, the fact of it is that the great creator, God, who is the creator of all things in heaven and earth, the one who loves us and has called us according to his purpose, loves us. God loves us. And so it's not good to question beyond certain limits. Not good to question. Love out of a pure heart and of a good conscience and of faith and Feigned. So a good conscience. A conscience that Hebrew says has been purged from dead works to serve the living and true God. Purged from dead works, you see. That's, that's, that's a pure conscience. And he says of faith, which is truly faith. Faith sincerely in Christ our God, our Savior. And so Paul charged Timothy to rebuke those to teach, who teach heterodoxy. Paul explains the nature of false teaching, which is not Christ-centered. Look at verse um, 6 and 7. From which some, having swerved, have turned aside unto vain jangling. Uh, you, can we, just reading that verse itself, then they're not teaching what they, the apostolic teachings were, they turned aside unto something else. Now you say, well, what is that something else? Well, as we know back in the previous verse, what it was. They had gone to these other areas. And uh, so this vain jangling, this, this worthless uh, uh, pursuit of knowledge which was not of God, was was something that should be avoided, he says. From which some have swerved, 
have turned aside unto vain jangling. And so the minute we get off track under, on, onto something else, why it is not edifying anymore. And, uh, you know, at some point, it's not wrong to ask questions. I mean, it's good to ask questions, but we should not uh, uh, it be in the pursuit of them to the point that we forget the main doctrinal issue and what Christ has said or God has uh, indicated to us in the Word. You know, let's keep our questions, you know, then to the point and answer them as far as we can and say beyond that, the deeper things belong to the Lord. And and allow Him to minister to us what that what those deep things are as best that the Scripture is able to explain them to us. You know, I think we see the vain janglings of evolution, don't you? It, you know, it's just... On and on it goes. Once they've started down that road, there's just no end to it. Um... You know, whether it's uh, some planted in outer space or some Big Bang theory or whether it's uh, uh, trying to def deflate the, the, the big flood, the flood of the, of the Bible and of why God allowed that um, or where man came from, his origins, you know. They, all of these different subjects, they just go on and on and on and on. And, uh, you know, perhaps you've had opportunity to see some of those debates or something that they sometimes have concerning evolution. And you're probably better off not even to watch them or look at them. Because in the end, they just minister more questions. They're vain jangling. And they do not edify. Uh, but when we come back to the origins of man through the word of God, we find there is absolute, definite information given to us of where man came from and where God was, how God was created. And who did it? And for what purpose? You know, all these things. The first beginnings are in the book of Genesis. It is the book of first beginnings. And so we find that there is much information there for us to pursue. So he says, From which some, having swerved, have turned aside unto vain janglings, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say, nor that which they affirm. So here we, when they, we talk about the law, well, we might immediately think of the Jews. and But there is a law that man has unto himself. Even secularism has a certain law to itself. Even the unsaved have a certain kind of morality and law unto itself. And so when anybody reverts to the law, well, look at the various kinds of religions of the world. They're all law-based in some sense. You have to offer something to some god or other and if you don't do it, and if you don't appease the, the particular God of choice, then you're going to be somehow affected by it. You know, all religions have some kind of law, some kind of discipline, whether it's Buddhism or Shintoism or uh, various kinds of beliefs in the East, and, or some that we haven't even heard of. Uh, there's, they have all kinds of different different law-based uh, things. But here in the first century, we probably immediately think of the Jewish people who were, of course, uh, mingling this, these, this law. Um, desired, desiring to be teachers of the law. They wanted to be teachers of the law. Well, isn't it true that man likes to have some constricted areas, you know? Uh, even in Protestant churches, you know, there's something, you, you can't do this and this and this and this and this. Well, there may be many things that are good for us not to do. Um, and Paul does go on to say that the law should be used lawfully, that there is a place for it. But if you find somebody, a pastor, who's teaching the law all the time to their people, then they're getting away from grace. They're getting away from 
the doctrines of grace. And they don't, they don't, they won't mix. Grace and law does not mix. Especially after once you have come to faith in Christ, they don't mix very well at all. Certainly you're not saved by the law. The Bible has no way indicates that man is saved by the law. And, and so we find that uh, the use of the law then must be lawfully, used rightly or righteously. <clears throat> and so understanding what the law says, nor that about which they say so, in, in truth he's telling Timothy they don't understand, they're not using it right. They're not using the law correctly. And so, if, it, if the law is brought up, we ought to use it correctly. We ought to say why the, the law is a schoolmaster to the unsaved. That it teaches them that they are sinners. That they have broken the, the, the commandments of God. And because they have broken the commandments of God, they need Christ as their Savior, and Christ alone can give them the forgiveness of sins by his own sacrifice. And so they need to turn away from their sin because they are guilty. And they need to turn to Christ. The law has a proper usage. Um, and you'll find that the old evangelists always used the law in evangelizing. Even you may remember many of the older crusades by Billy Graham and he, was, he would use the law to tell them that they were sinners and why they were sinners. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. And he would go into various aspects perhaps. And you'll, if you find any uh, particular versions of conversions of older, in older cases of uh, people who came to faith in Christ, you will find that the, the law was, was used much to bring them to the place where they realize their sin. If you read about Jonathan Edwards or, or Brainerd, David Brainerd, or some of these people, uh, they constantly refer to the fact that they were under a great burden of the law because they felt their sin. And we might say today, why isn't the more people come to faith in Christ? Well, perhaps this is lacking. Perhaps the people are dismissing their sin. Perhaps there is not the right emphasis put upon their sin and pointing out that it is a transgression of the law of God that they are guilty of and that they need to come to faith in Christ. You see, a true evangelist is going to use um, the law to bring a person to faith in Christ. But we know that the law is good if a man use it lawfully, he says. He use it rightly, justly. Knowing this, that the law is not made for the righteous man, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and for sinners, for unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers. And it goes on and talks about fornicators, for them that defile themselves with mankind, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjured persons. And if there be any other thing, that is contrary to sound doctrine. So he, he lists all these uh, various kinds of really bad sins, and he says that is the reason the law is to be given, to tell these people that they have broken the law of God. The law is not something that we should be preaching in our, in our churches that are to Christians who are saved. I mean, you, you may bring in some aspect of it if you're trying to... If you, if, if you're hoping that there are those out there who aren't saved, and you may be pointing them to Christ and say, if you have sinned, you, you can truly find the forgiveness of sins, even though you have sinned, even though you have done some of these terrible sins. You can find forgiveness because Christ is the one who died for your sins according to the Scriptures. But we don't teach and dwell on the law to believers where we rather seek to edify them and tell them of the love of God and the mercy of God and the grace of God and the faith of Jesus in Jesus Christ. We talk to them about these areas of, of how Christ has brought salvation to us. And we are lifted up 
unto heaven because of these things. Though our feet are planted here, our hearts are planted in heaven, and we're waiting for Christ to come. Or that we might join him because of our natural going unto him from death. But the, the law doesn't save anybody. It is rather to teach us. And so we find that it is to be used lawfully. And so the implications, that there were those who were teaching the law improperly. Timothy was at Ephesus. He was uh, charged to uh, point this out to them that were teaching, it in, teaching incorrectly and were not uh, truly teaching an orthodox apostolic doctrine and he wanted to get them back on track. And so he tells them these things. The true nature of the law is for the ungodly, lawless, and disobedient. Now, it, is, it may be very well true that the law can be used in some sense to correct the Christian. For if a Christian is using liberty to do things that they shouldn't do, you may point to them, you may help to them and say, well, look, this is what the Bible says. You shouldn't be doing these things. It's against the, the law of God to do these things. You're not, you're not saved by these things. They rather defile you. And, of course, uh, you know, some people may say, well, I've, I've done sins that are too bad. I can't be saved no longer. Well, unless they was in the New Testament and committed the unpardonable sin of blaspheming the Holy Spirit, the only sin that I know of is to for is disbelief or rejecting the gospel of Christ. And so we need to point them to in the right direction, is what I'm saying. Point them in the right direction. Um, they can't look at something like blasphemy against the Holy Spirit in, in the Bible and say that they've, they've done the unpardonable sin and they'll never be saved. They can't be saved. Uh, you need to point them back to Christ and say, Christ is the one who can save you. And he, he will save you if you call upon him. And, uh, you know, uh, we, we recognize that these things are taught for a reason unto those who are believers. According to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed... To my trust. He says, this is where the doctrine comes from. According to the blessed, the, glor the glorious gospel of the blessed God. The glorious gospel of the blessed God. That's where the doctrines come from. In other words, he's saying the doctrines of Christ. The, the doctrines which, which were brought unto the church through Jesus Christ. Our Lord. These are the glorious, this is the glorious gospel right here. It's just another way of saying, preaching the gospel of Christ, the glorious gospel. Uh, Romans 1.16, uh, we recognize that it's the power of God unto salvation, uh, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And so we should never get away from the gospel. You know, we might be teaching some other doctrine, but we've got to come back to the gospel. Gospel is where we begin so we can understand the other teachings. The true glorious gospel of Christ is where we begin to understand the other doctrines of predestination, election, foreordination, whatever you want to call it, whatever, heaven, hell, and, and uh, beyond. You know, we, we, have to, we have to first understand the gospel and what it, it truly means to us. No man can pluck you out of the Father's hand, you see. Those, are, those who know his voice and follow him. Those who have been brought by the loving, compassionate love, mercy, and grace of God unto the gospel of Christ are brought into the family of God never to depart. Maybe a lot of bumps in the road a lot of trials and sufferings which we go through. Perhaps some of them are because of our own selves. James says, let no man say that God is tempting you. If you're, if you're truly tempted to do some sin, it's because, he says, you have drawn away your own, your own lust and enticed. 
It isn't God who does it. No. So we need to recognize where that comes from. But you're not, you're not lost. A person doesn't get unsaved. If we could get unsaved, we would get unsaved. It's basically what it comes down to. Everybody who are saved, if they could be unsaved, they would be unsaved. You see? But if you could save yourself, you would never save yourself. <laughs> because we, we, have, we have all sinned and do continue to sin. No, it, we must keep the, the glorious gospel intact. Questions should not come up and, and somehow undermine or erode the glorious gospel of Christ. We must keep it intact, you see. Can't add something else to it. The purity of the gospel must remain. Because because of that, we have full assurance of faith, you see, in Christ. And, and not only that, you can tell other people that they have full assurance of faith to go to Christ, you see. As long as you have that, this true sense of what the Bible says about the glorious gospels of Christ, gospel of Christ, you can, you can preach to somebody else, you can minister to them when they come to you and say, look, I know you perhaps have done something wrong, and I don't even have to know what it is, but I do know this, that Christ has come into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief, Paul says. And you can, you can also know the forgiveness of sins by the blood of Christ if you will confess your sin to him and call upon him. You see, because you understand thoroughly what it means to know the glorious gospel of Christ, you have something to take to somebody else. And it's not your own authority, it's the authority of the Bible, you see. The authority of the word of God, that's what you're standing on. And that's why every pastor can get up and preach what they do if they're preaching the glorious gospel of Christ. You can preach it, the pastor can preach it because it's not his gospel. It's not his. He doesn't own it. He didn't author it. God alone did. And so he can, he can stand and he can preach and he can confirm the, the word of God. He can bring every issue of the scriptures to it and, and fairly define everything about it with all the authority that the Word of God gives. But he isn't allowed to give anything of his own. Not one thing. It's better that we don't. Because the minute we do, we stray into some vain jangling or fable or genealogy or, or, or questions that minister strife, you see. If it was important in the first century, it's important today too. And so I would just encourage you to ground yourself firmly in the glorious gospel of Christ. Because if you do, you will continually come back to it every single time you have some particular need. Or be able to minister to somebody, you come back to the glorious gospel of Christ. You don't try to prove election to them. It's useless. That's something for someone who's not only come to faith, but is trying to understand the deeper things of the Word of God. But if somebody is having some kind of problem in their life, and they're weak in faith, they, they're stumbling along the way, bring them back to the glorious gospel of Christ. That's what's going to help them, you see. Not some, not some deeper doctrine. In fact, I guess in the book of Hebrews, he even says he needed to teach them the milk of the word of God again to kind of center them back on what was important. <laughs> well, the law is for the lawless. I know I've taken you over a little. I'm sorry for that. But shall we pray? Loving Father, we do thank you for your word and thank you for this passage. Pray, Lord, we will understand the proper usage of the law and realize that the glorious gospel of Christ is where we need to truly focus our attention, not only for our own lives, but for, the, for others as well. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, um, 393. Uh, this has to be one of my favorites. Lily of the Valley.
I always loved it when my wife played it. Uh, she always allowed for the hallelujah in it. 393. So I trust, Dave, you'll give us a chance to, to say a little hallelujah in this. We'll get a little Pentecostal on you. Um, did I get the right? Oh, 392, excuse me. Sorry. 392. I found a friend in Jesus. He's everything to me. He's the fairest of 10,000 to my soul. The Thank you. Let's close in prayer. And Pastor Bo, would you dismiss us in prayer? Loving Father, we do thank you so much, Lord, for that blessed gospel of our Lord God Almighty. We pray, Father, that you'll always keep it to the tip of our tongue so we can give it to every person who's crying out for salvation, who's crying out, Lord, for forgiveness of sins. Help us, Lord, to give it piece by piece. That the Lord Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins, was buried, and then rose again on the third day according to the scriptures send him into heaven and see that you're right hand. and we thank you Father for that glorious gospel of the blessed God in Jesus name Amen Amen